Hello, and welcome to One Week, One Year, a podcast where we watch and discuss a year of film history every week, starting from 1895, the dawn of cinema. And this week is 1912. I'm one of your hosts, Chris Ellie. I'm a film projectionist, and joining me as always is... I'm Glenn Covell. I'm a filmmaker. Yes, you are. Um, a filmmaker who... Uh, oh, we'll get we'll we'll get to we'll get to one of the films we made sure ah! uh, this week. Um, Indeed. So yeah, we're uh, we're a film history podcast uh, currently focused on silent films. Although you know, no special attention. It's just that we're going one one year at a time. We're going in movies. order. So yes, <laughs> we're going meticulously in order. So it's all silence now which means if you're watching on youtube right now uh we're going to be adding in the the films for you to watch while we speak over them and if you are listening in a podcast then you can follow the link in your description for a playlist that uh, shows all the movies if you'd like to watch them beforehand watch them you know on your own while listening to us because we won't be able to show the whole thing most of the time because our discussion will be longer than the movies because we're getting into Two, three, four real movies. Four real movies. That's four quibbies. Um, <laughs> uh, uh, so we're getting into longer movies, which is exciting. Because um, I think that we can start focusing a little more. Uh, but we got a bunch of movies to talk about now. Uh, first off, what's going on, Glenn? How's it going? Oh, you know, it's going. Mm-hmm. Um... It's rainy out today, so I've just been watching stuff all day. Um, but that's fun. I like watching stuff. What you been watching? Uh, I started watching two television shows, uh, The Nick and Atlanta, both of which uh, are I'm long overdue on watching, mm. and they're both excellent. Nice. So, in I've case heard great things about both of them. In case you're listening to this and you want to watch something that's not from the 1900s, but takes place in the 1900s, you can watch The Nick. And if you want to watch something that is not was not made in the 1900s and also does not take place then, then you should watch Atlanta. <laughs> Solid recommendations. <laughs> I was finally able to wrestle the Georges Méliès encore set out of the clutches of the New York Public Library because I... I put a hold on it three months ago and nobody was checking it out but for some reason it never moved and then finally they said hey we've got it pick it up uh so we're talking about movies from 1912 so this is uh you know this is a, a history podcast as much as a film podcast it's more of a film podcast but we like to inject ourselves with a little context a little history for what's going on so glenn would you give us the news of the year 1912 the news of the year, 1912. Breaking. The RMS Titanic has sunk after striking an iceberg on our maiden voyage. Over 1,500 dead in the wreckage of the largest ship ever built. The Xinhai Revolution ends the final Chinese dynasty. Enter the Republic of China. New Mexico and Arizona enter the Union, the 47th and 48th states. In response to growing troubles, the International Opium Convention becomes the first international drug control treaty. The United States attempted and failed to banish reefer as well. The patent for MDMA is filed. Initially created to stop abnormal bleeding, someday it will find its true use, electrifying the dance floor. 
Cherry Blossom Season now has two homes, as Tokyo Mayor Yukio Ozaki gives 3,000 trees to Washington, D.C. Harriet Quimby is the first woman to fly the English Channel. Only two months after her feet, her new Blériot monoplane crashes and she perishes. The Japanese emperor dies, signaling the end of the 44-year Meiji period. The United States occupies Nicaragua as part of a series of invasions in Latin America to assert the economic dominance of U.S. corporations like the United Fruit Company. While campaigning, Teddy Roosevelt is shot in the chest by an assassin claiming McKinley's ghost summoned him for revenge. Teddy finishes his speech before he goes to the hospital. The Universal Film Manufacturing Company is founded, the oldest surviving American studio. Biograph actor Max Sennett takes the helm and founds Keystone Studios in sunny Los Angeles. Edison and Pate create home projectors and cameras in lower gauges. Home movies begin! Thank you, Glenn. You're welcome. The news update. Yeah, Teddy Roosevelt um, apparently spoke for like 60 to 90 minutes after being shot in the chest. He was like, I'm fine. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, But it didn't matter because he was campaigning and it didn't matter because he lost. So... Mm. Um, but and Werner Herzog just don't care. That is true. Yeah, a similarity. They both they both can get shot and continue what they're doing, and they both um, massacre bears willy nilly. <laughs> but Herzog didn't massacre bears. He just made movies about them. That's true. I, I I was just making that up, and I completely forgot that there was a that he made a movie, movie. called Grizzly Man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um. Well, I mean, the big news item of this year really yeah. is Titanic. The obvious one. Um, which, yeah, big big deal. I feel like this is the, the, the piece of news that people, from this era, that people may reflect on the most, you know? Mm. People love to think about Titanic. Yeah. And I think it, it uh, it's one of the ones that most easily kind of sets the scene of like, oh, okay, that's where we are. In mm-hmm. Titanic time. Right. In olden Titanic times. Yeah. You know, back in Titanic times. Yeah. Remember the Titanic? Um, anyway, there were some bonkers Titanic movies, or one yeah. bonkers Titanic movie, and one and one regular one, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, there were there were th- three technically, I guess. Oh. Um, oh, you're, you're the, counting the newsreel. Well, I'm I'm counting the the Louis Fouillade one. That I don't, did you watch that one? No. Oh, okay. He made a movie called The Obsession, which is not about, specifically about that, well, it is specifically about the Titanic, but it's about more than that. Oh. Oddly enough, the most notable Titanic movie is the one that is lost, and we can no longer watch, because it, uh, all known copies of it burned in 1914 in a fire. Yep. Um, but it was the first Titanic film, released only 29 days after the ship sank. Yeah. <laughs> Yes, and, this is called Saved from the Titanic. Yeah, Saved from the t- Titanic, and it was co-written and starred Dorothy Gibson, who escaped the actual Titanic sinking. She was on the first lifeboat to leave the ship. Uh, yeah. And she immediately started working on a movie about it. She, like, got to shore and started making a movie, basically. In, in fact, apparently, um, the... Uh, so she was working for Eclair, and her boss uh, found out that she was that she was on her way back from the Titanic, and like brought film cameras 
over to like capture her arriving even the moment that she got back that Um, is insane yeah um yeah she she wore the same clothes in the movie that she did when she escaped the titanic Mm -hmm. if if that sounds like it was an incredibly stressful thing to do i think that is a correct assumption because she she immediately retired from acting after making this movie yeah, I mean, apparently having a nervous breakdown is, is yeah. what was said. <laughs> Which, yeah, there were there were reports of her on set, like, breaking down into tears. And, like, apparently you could see in in a lot of the, the film that she was still kind of traumatized oh. while shooting it. I saw, I saw someone suggesting that it's like, maybe she wrote the movie as in, like, you know, they got her input on what happened, mm. but, like, mm. she was kind of strong-armed into making it by the the, the company she was working for. Because, uh, I mean, like, what what a great opportunity for a, 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 for an unscrupulous film producer. Without scruple. A, a film producer without scruple. <laughs> uh... Uh, yeah, you you got one of your stars who was on the Titanic, and everybody, it was the talk of the town, so of course you're going to jump on that. This one is one that I really wish that I could watch. Yeah. Um, likely, uh, sort of, you know, <laughs> mental health be damned on the film set stuff, notwithstanding, but I would like to have been able to see it. Yeah. Um, it, yeah, it would have been really interesting to see, definitely. A Titanic movie that we did watch, uh, and is the first feature film about the Titanic, is In Nacht und Eis, or In Night and Ice. Yes. <laughs> uh, uh, it's yeah. A, it's a German film, if you couldn't tell. <laughs> I couldn't. <laughs> uh, what uh, did you, you think of this one? I, I had fun with it. I mean, it is, um... It, it's a little slow, as a lot of these longer movies are. But I, I thought that, um, I thought that, despite the slowness, I think part of, part of what felt slow is that it felt very verite in a lot of ways. Um, it, a lot of the beginning of the movie is built out of scenes of just crowds entering the Titanic and people hanging out on a on a ship and and the ship arriving and all that kind of thing, um, and. Uh, so it, it felt very period in a way that um, a lot of these other movies, like they feel more constructed, I guess. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it was a, it was a fun one. I liked it. I did. I did notice that it almost felt like in the beginning, at least, it was kind of trying to create the impression of newsreel footage. Mm-hmm. Um, and it kind of fooled me for a second into thinking, oh, this is actual footage of people like boarding the t- Titanic, and then they. And then they punch out to a you know a wide shot of a real ship that is clearly not the Titanic, uh, and I was like, wait a minute, nope, that is a different boat. Yep, it is the Kaiser and August Victoria oh. uh, that they shot on the German a German liner. <laughs> um, but still, it 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 creates this, especially having been released. I think this one came out four months after the Titanic sank. Mm-hmm. Um, it does kind of create this very. Uh, kind of grounded, yeah, like verite, sort of. Um, this is the wrong term, but almost like a found footage type of thing for the time. <laughs> yeah, yeah, the clover um, field of boats. Yeah, um, and yeah, I, I did no- notice in the intertitles it, you know, it sort of introduces us to a couple different characters 
who don't have names. Um, they're just kind of referred to as a well-known billionaire. <laughs> um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, the first half of it, when it's just kind of people hanging out in the ship, it's, there's not really any conflict. It's not really telling much of a story. It's just sort of like, hey, is some rich people doing rich people stuff. Yeah. Playing Doesn't... some weird old-timey games on the <laughs> yeah. deck of the Titanic. Sitting on a, sitting on a, a pole and then necking, hitting each other with pillows. Yeah, there was another one where they were uh, there was like a line drawn on the ground and then a bunch of like glass bottles and they were trying to like walk on the line without knocking over any of the bottles. Yeah, Str- strange. Um, it definitely focuses more on the 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 first class passengers than pretty much anyone else. Um, which is sort of an interesting. I don't know. It's like when I think of the Titanic, I almost my mind immediately thinks of the like upstairs downstairs of it of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, of, you know, like, the, the, the class divide between different decks and that sort of thing. And this, other than showing occasional cutaways to the engine room, it's pretty much just like, this is a ship full of rich people. Right, right. I guess, um, I guess that the class stuff is sort of central to the James Cameron movie. I, I haven't mm-hmm. seen it, so I, I don't know. Um, I guess it's like Leonardo DiCaprio is the lower class guy, right? Yeah, yeah, it's a whole kind of forbidden romance type, type story. Um, which works for a boat because you're already, you know, there's they're already telling a story on the boat before any icebergs happen. Um, that, that's un- useful. Unlike this movie, <laughs> <laughs> there is a little. There's some kind of cool intercutting between, you know, people sh- sipping champagne in the lounge and then the crew, kind of seeing the iceberg and then reacting to it, and then we're, we're kind of cutting back and forth between those two different things. That's true. Yeah, it kind of establish some tension in that classic mm-hmm. Titanic story way. Um, um, and then we, we get to see the ship hit the iceberg in, as a, a miniature shot. So, mm-hmm. uh, a, a pretty well done miniature shot, I think. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it, For the time. Uh, uh, something that I was wondering, and I wonder if you have any input on this, is that it, you know, it looks okay, because it's a pretty big mi- miniature, but you can still totally tell that it's a fake boat, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So why is it that like movies from the '60s and '70s, when they're using miniatures, it 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 it, it seems a lot more believable as giant objects, like in Star Wars or something like that. Um, but but it looks so like dinky and fake here. Do you think, do you know why that might be? I well, I think the two main reasons why are um, overcranking the camera, so putting it in slight slow motion, because. Mm-hmm. Bigger objects, we perceive them as, even if they're moving very quickly, that they're moving slowly when we're viewing them from far away. Yeah. Um, And that makes stuff like water also look much bigger, because water is something that you can usually tell is small. You know, if you're seeing little tiny, like, puddle ripples and waves, it's like, okay, they're in a pool. Yeah. Um, But if you slow it down, it, it looks more like ocean waves. And I think the other thing, too, is just miniatures got bigger. I think mm-hmm. a lot of movies from the 70s and and since, like, miniatures from, like, Peter Jackson movies and things are enormous. They take up, like, whole sound stages. Um, it's just that they're miniatures of, like, mountains crumbling and things like that. So it's, like, they're still, you know, 10th scale or something like that, or even smaller, but it's that they still give the impression of, of size and weight because they are very big and heavy. Uh-huh. That's interesting. I, yeah. um... Man, you just reminded me of, um... 
I don't remember what museum it was in Virginia, um, but it was like a like an aeronautics museum, and they had a giant, uh, or they had like the the miniature of the spaceship they used in Close Encounters, um, and it was probably like ten feet wide or something mm. like that. Super super big, really intricate. Yeah. Um, the 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 ship looks okay, but. And so the ship looks okay next to the iceberg when it's in miniature, but I thought that the shots of the the POV shots of the um, the captain looking out of his binoculars is yeah. like, oh my god, an iceberg! And, then and it's it, just like yeah. this little piece of ice in the water. Yeah, it looks like he's looking at someone's drink. It's it's uh, <laughs> yeah, um, yeah. There was some some fun 1910s acting moments in this of them seeing the iceberg. I'm like. Oh, 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 just freaking yeah. out over it. Yeah, yeah. Um, uh, yeah, this was like an hour long. So, just barely a feature, I guess, but still pretty pretty notable that they were able to make this in that short amount of time. Is impressive, yeah. I think. Well, this was also um, the uh, a 24-year-old director and his first movie. Um uh, and I guess he went on to make other things, but uh, one of the one of the people who did really from this movie who really went on to make other things was uh, one of the cameramen was Willie Hammeister, um, who uh, a number of years later would go on to be the cinematographer of the Cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Oh wow! Yeah, I didn't know that. That's that's very cool. Yeah, pretty pretty exciting uh, that we're starting to see like these real established figures. Yeah. I won't talk about it too long since you didn't watch it, but uh, Louis Fayad also made a Titanic related movie called The Obsession, which also has uh, miniature shots in it. But it is it's not a disaster movie so much as it's sort of a a drama about a woman who becomes obsessed with the idea of someone she loves is going to die. Uh, a palm reader tells her this, and so she gets all stressed, and then her husband goes goes off on the Titanic, and it sinks, and she thinks he's dead. Um, and then the, the palm reader is revealed to be a fraud at the end. Spoilers. Um, but so it's sort of like using the, the recent Titanic disaster as kind of a backdrop for this this story that it's telling, which is, I, th- I think, an interesting way of addressing it in the time that it happened, but not, mm. you know, it's not a Titanic movie like we yeah. would think of one. Seems a little less lurid and, like, exploitative. Yeah, maybe. I mean, the the entire Titanic sinking happens in a single miniature shot of just, it hits the iceberg and goes under. And it's, the miniature shot I don't think looks as good in this one. And it's, mm-hmm. it also is sort of like the sinking happens within, I don't know, 10 seconds. <laughs> it's like iceberg underwater <laughs> immediately. <laughs> um, there is some really good uh, cinematography in this. Um, there's a really cool shot of uh, the, ma- the main character looking out a window at the Eiffel Tower. Um, this is framed really nicely and has like some cool lighting to it, which is something we haven't really seen as much of up till now. Hmm. So that was an interesting kind of offshoot, I guess, of the Titanic movies. Yeah. Um, actually, re- related to the kind of unscrupulousness of um, <laughs> of these Titanic movies, um, I have a quote from the New York Dramatic Mirror, 
who were talking about the uh, the original one, um, Saved from the Titanic. Uh, and they were they were saying that it seemed really tasteless. Uh, they oh, said, really? The bare idea of undertaking to reproduce in a studio, no matter how well-equipped or by reenacted sea scenes, an event of the appalling character of the Titanic disaster with its 1,600 victims is revolting, especially at this time when the horrors of the event are so fresh in mind. They so, have a point. I yeah. mean, <laughs> making a movie within a month of a huge disaster like that is, yeah, I can see it being pretty tasteless. <laughs> Having not seen the movie, I don't know how lurid the movie is, but... Yeah. Imagine if, um... Oh my god, what was that like? Was it Nicolas Cage movie about 9-11? Um, uh, yeah, I think Oliver Stone directed it. Yeah, imagine if that came out, like... <laughs> Like October twelfth, eleventh. Yeah, yeah, that would be a bit, a bit much, probably. Oh, I guess one more thing about a, a night in in night and ice that I thought was kind of a neat touch was that the, when they were playing music uh, on, on the boat, they actually just showed musical notation on the screen, mm. which was sort of a fun little way of demonstrating uh, uh, that sound was happening. I mm. guess. Um, I mean, it's. I don't know if this was part of the original, but uh, the version of The Obsession that I watched had that same piece of music when the Titanic sank, which I guess is what they were actually playing Okay, uh, hmm. as the ship sank, which is uh, a, a, a fun little detail, I guess. <laughs> they, they're asking all the survivors, like, what music was playing? Yeah. We gotta, <laughs> we gotta be authentic here. <laughs> um, I mean, speaking of feature films... Um, yeah. We twenty nineteen twelve is the year that the first uh, the first intact American feature film was released. Yeah, and that is well, the, Richard the, the oldest Third. surviving. Yes, yeah, Richard the Third. I think the other one might have come out in nineteen twelve also, but uh, just like earlier in the year. Oh, um, okay. And uh, yeah, it does not survive in full. Uh, yeah, it's a Shakespeare adaptation that was shot in Westchester and Long Island, or not Long Island, um, uh, City Island in mm. the Bronx. Um, <laughs> Classic Shakespeare location. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it's Shakespeare. Uh, what what do you think of this well, movie? Well, it's, it's, it's a bit weird because I feel like Shake, so much of Shakespeare is the language and this is a silent film. Yeah. Um, and they don't even use, you know, quotes from Shakespeare in the intertitles. So it's sort of just like, it's like you're watching Shakespeare through, like a, a Shakespeare play through a window, and you can't hear what they're saying a little bit. <laughs> right. Well, um, these were real, like a lot of them were real Shakespearean actors who were doing their practiced bits in front of the camera. Yeah. So. I think I think that stuff shines pretty well. I mean, it's it's very heightened and theatrical, but it's Shakespeare. Um, the the guy who plays Richard III, Frederick Ward, I think does some, does some good work in this. Hmm. Um... Yeah, I mean, I didn't think that they adapted it in a particularly interesting way. It's more just like, yeah, here you go, Richard III. Like, it doesn't really... It feels very much just like filming the play without sound. Yeah, I um, mean, they're able to get in a lot more locations than a play would. Um, yeah. But, uh, yeah, we've seen a number of, like, Shakespeare adaptations so far. This is maybe one of the... I guess one of the bigger ones. Mm -hmm. um, but... 
uh, I'm not, I'm no Shakespeare expert, but I guess like, like his movies can be divided in between like his comedies, his tragedies and his political plays where this one is a political one that's just about like palace intrigue. Mm -hmm. And I feel like that, that kind of stuff isn't very visual. And so it it doesn't work super well on film. The intrigue stuff doesn't, the murders do. There's a lot of murders in this one. Um, that stuff plays pretty well on, on film. Um, while I was watching this, speaking of all the intrigue and the plotting, um, I was like, this, this is very Game of Thronesy. A lot of like, you know, kings backstabbing and like vying for power and things. And then I was like, mm-hmm. yeah, that's because A Song of Ice and Fire, the books that, you know, are Game of Thrones, is based on the historical War of the Roses, which is what Richard the Third is based on. So oh. it, it literally is Game of Thrones. <laughs> Oh, <laughs> not literally. I shouldn't say. I'm using that word entirely incorrectly, but they are both stemming from the same historical story. That's interesting. I didn't know that Game of Thrones was directly inspired by anything. Yeah, I mean, I think it's in the sense that it is sort of warring royal families uh mm-hmm. who do lots of intrigue and murders. Yeah. I think beyond that it kind of, you know, it, it adds a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah i mean it was this was one that was like i'm glad i watched it because of its kind of historical importance but it wasn't the most entertaining no i was I quite bored by it honestly <laughs> <laughs> uh although i was i was thinking about the a lot of the outdoor scenes with castles and they had these giant sets and i was thinking like i wonder if they built these or if they just like went over the tap and z to tuxedo and filmed at the at the ren fair um but assuming uh, there was a Ren fair there in 1912, yeah. I don't know. Maybe. That's okay. That, that joke didn't land. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. What do you want to go on to next? Well, I mean, we're already in sort of, uh, you know, notable American films. Mm-hmm. I think there were a lot of notable, this was the first feature film made in America or the oldest yep. one that we can watch. There were some other notable, I think firsts or, or oldest survivings to be more accurate. Mm-hmm. Um, like the oldest surviving Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde film. Yes. Yeah. Definitely not the first because we've passed over like three or four of them yeah. that didn't survive, I think. They've they've been going at it for a while, but this is the 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 earliest one that you can actually find that isn't like burned or lost. Um and uh yeah, it's fine. <laughs> <laughs> And this is um uh oh what's the Th- the Thanhauser company uh, yeah who, who did this uh which um, is a pretty short lived New York based uh film studio although mm-hmm. uh, I was reading about it um and it kind of got me down a sent me down a wormhole about how um Thanhauser was one of the the few kind of East Coast film studios um that relocated to Jacksonville shortly after this Jacksonville Florida for the the brighter light and the warmer climate. Um, and Jacksonville almost became the sort of primary American filmmaking hub city, uh, but lost out to LA. There was sort of a a brief time where they were both kind of vying for that position. Jacksonville! Um, (laughs) but, uh, there's a really good, um, Vox.com video about, about that whole thing. Um. Oh, I should check that out. Can, uh, link that to me and I'll link it to the listeners. We'll, we'll do. Um, a little context about Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, though, I think we should say, I don't know if we said it on the podcast before, this was, 
or Doc, the story of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde was the first live action thing I ever directed when I was like 14 yeah. or 15. I think you were even younger than that, right? Maybe. I mean, I was, I think I was like 12. When you we started made. it. Yes. Yeah, I was I was Mr. Utterson, and this is another instance of Mr. Utterson erasure. Yes, <laughs> complete Mr. Movie. Utterson erasure. For those of you who don't know, Mr. Utterson is the actual like main point of view character of the novella, The, the Strange Case of Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde by Robert Louis Stevenson. And he is almost always cut out in every adaptation. Um, because the original is a mystery... That you don't find out till the very end that Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde are the same person. It's like uh, a big twist that they've been the same person the whole time. <laughs> um, and this 1912 film, like most versions or adaptations, completely ignores that. And it's just right from the get-go. Dr. Jekyll's the main character. Right. And it's just about him kind of trying to hide his double life. Mr. Hyde, his double life. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, there's a, uh, <laughs> yeah, there's, uh, it, was, it was funny because I've, I've never read Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde, but like, I have, I feel like I have a, a sense of the story beats from being in it. <laughs> my, I mean, my, my version of it follows the novella very closely. I, I made, it was like a sticking point for me. I was like, I'm going to do it right. No yeah. one else is doing this. I'm going to do it like very, very close to the actual thing. Uh, yeah, this one was, I think, based less on the book and more on an earlier stage version uh, mm-hmm. from the late 1800s. Yeah. The, um, um, that stage version, I think the actual original stage version maintains the, the mystery aspect that you don't actually find out till I think at least about halfway through that they're the same person. Mm-hmm. Um, but that the, the play version adds the character of Jekyll's fiance, who is kind of a major character in almost every film adaptation that I've seen. Oh. Um, or it's a lot of the big ones because um, mm-hmm. that gives it a nice romantic subplot that the original story is completely lacking. Um, and yeah, I mean the it's it like does... Frankenstein's fiance in the, yeah, in the Frankenstein yeah. movie from two years ago. Um, uh, they there's a pretty decent makeup and performance, I think, by uh, James Cruz who plays you know the the dual role. Mm-hmm. Um. You know, I think he does does a pretty good job, like playing the two different characters, or you know, two different people. Uh, yeah, well. yeah. I mean, the, it's funny the way that Mister Hyde is evil in this is that he just kind of goes around pushing people and then looking menacing. I mean, that's uh, that's kind of how he is in the novella too, until he <laughs> until he does a murder. Yeah. Um, he's, yeah, he's just a gnarly looking dude who people like fear, and yeah. then he murders them. Yeah. Um, this, the, the biggest departure from this, uh, novella that I did not appreciate was Poole, the best character, who is Jekyll's butler, doesn't yeah. even get to chop the door down at the end. That's like yeah. his big moment. You give, he, they give the axe to, Ad, uh, to Alan instead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I was constantly comparing everyone's performances in this movie to my friends when they were 12. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah, that was a fun one. It was, um, yeah. Um, I'm glad we finally got to watch one of these early Jekyll and Hyde movies. Yeah. Um, we, we mentioned in the news segment that, uh, Keystone Studios was founded. Mm-hmm. 
Uh, by uh, Max Sennett. Max Sennett, which is a yeah. great old-timey name. Yes. Um, he's popped up in a couple of comedies, I think, by... Uh, D. Uh, not D. W. Griffith. Did he do any? Com- he hasn't really done comedy. Uh, he did the, not really. the the Hat movie. Yeah. Um, I think I I don't even remember. I wrote I wrote somewhere in my notes that like hats are the only thing that D. W. is is not deadly serious about. Um, pretty much. Uh, so the first Keystone film, um, that was shot though it wasn't the first released. Uh, even though Keystone is kind of most well-known as one of the early L.A.-based film studios, uh, the first movie is At Coney Island, mm. um, which I guess they probably filmed on the East Coast before they relocated. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, it's shot in Coney Island, and it's 1912 Coney Island, so it looks completely different and very wild. Yeah, yeah super cool. On on July 4th, no less, there are no. Island. Uh, there's lots of weird rides. Uh, there are no plastic bags anywhere. It's unrecognizable. Um, um, and yeah, it's it's not really anything that special, but it is, I think it's kind of a good example of the kind of comedies that Keystone would become famous for, of just mm. like wild slapstick chase silliness. Yeah, and this is another love triangle of two guys this, fighting over a woman. This is like a love hexagon or something. There's uh, yeah, like, there's, I guess there's a couple more. Yeah. Max Sennett and Mabel Norman both uh, co-star, as they often did. Yeah, it's it's one of those... It's just people running around Coney Island causing mischief, I guess. The plot of it is pretty thin. Yeah, I, it was a little actually tough to follow exactly what the action was. I vaguely knew what was happening, but yeah. like it got a little complex, I guess. Uh, although, it was... Yeah, my favorite part of it was seeing all of the old-timey rides that they had, yeah. which... which Included, like, these ones where you... This one looked so, so fun. Which is where there's, like, a slide, and you slide down onto these, like, super fast rotating yeah. metal discs. Um, and then they just sling you about in various directions. Uh, and I guess they kept doing that until too many kids lost teeth or something. I just... Yeah, every single ride in this that existed in 1912, I'm like, this looks very fun and extremely dangerous. <laughs> The spinning discs things, I'm like, someone got their, like, coat caught in one of these discs, and it... Oh my god. <laughs> I'm, I'm sure that killed someone. This probably existed until someone died, and then they had to close it. Isn't it appropriately Coney Island that, uh, yeah. you know, it went, it kept going until somebody died, and they're yeah. like, eh, I guess I'll change it. Hey, Cyclone, still going. No one's di- Has anyone died on the Cyclone? They probably have. But. I don't know. Um, amusement park deaths are, are kind of interesting. Have you been when, in the cyclone? When was this? Uh, I don't remember. I've only really spent, like, one day at Coney Island. I know I did that roller, that, um, Ferris wheel where you kind of slide back and forth on it. Uh, oh, okay. I, I must have done the cyclone, right? Maybe it was, it might have been closed when I was there. I don't oh, remember doing it. Does, it. They, they close it a lot. Um, oh. I think because it is sort of like... This has to be working in perfect order, or you will die. <laughs> oh my god. Yeah, I mean, uh, I watched a, another Keystone comedy. Um, this this one filmed in L.A. called Mabel's Adventures, just because I wanted to get a, a, a better sense of, like... Mabel Norman is kind of the, the Keystone star at this point. Until um, next year, when Charlie Chaplin... Uh, yeah. Or two years from now, I guess, um, when Charlie Chaplin really starts out. I do think it's funny that 
a lot of these early comedies are just the actor's name. You know, it's like all the Max yeah. Linder movies are like Max is afraid of water, and this is just Mabel's adventures. Like they yeah. don't they don't really give them titles so much as just like this is what the actor's going to do in this one. You know, I mean, I guess it's better than before, where people were just the biograph girl or whatever, yeah. right? Um, at this er- dash through the clouds, which also had Mabel Norman, um, was uh, she played a character named Martha. Um, so I guess at one point they were like, let's just, let's just name her. (laughs) Um, yeah. And I mean, I guess Max is a, as a pseudonym, but at least became what he was known by. Mm -hmm. Um, and yes, speaking of both Max Linder and Charlie Chaplin, I feel like this movie kind of fits squarely between them a little bit. Like it definitely feels like it owes a lot to Max Linder, even though it oftentimes, feels like the actors in this are kind of trying a little too hard to be funny. <laughs> uh, I feel like Max Linder makes it look very easy. Yeah. And this is a kind of good, good example of how hard that is. Like, how hard it is to do proper slapstick, because this movie is full of wacky slapstick stuff. And very, very little of it made, made me laugh. <laughs> right. And it's also really convoluted. I think I think that yeah. uh, the, the stuff that's really worked well with Max Linder is the stuff that's it's very clear what's happening mm-hmm. uh so that you can you're not you're not spending moments like bogged down in a lot of complex visual information uh you can just get good gags you know yeah. another thing that did stick out uh in this one though is uh Mabel Norman does the cane twirling thing that Charlie Chaplin kind of became famous for mhm so y- yet another example of you know other people doing that in comedies before him not to like take credit away from him, but it's just like that was more of a a comedy staple back then, I guess. Right. Of, like twirling a cane is is what you do. Well, one of our other uh, kind of big directors that we like thought was just worth a, a light touch this year was uh, Segundo de Chamon, mm-hmm. uh, who did a couple. He's starting to up his output again, but I think he's getting close to on his last legs as well. Um, he did this one, Superstition Andalus. Or Andalusian Superstition. Yes. Um, which, it's funny, I kind of like, it, it gets it gets Chimone toward the end, but the first yeah. like two-thirds of the movie feel like uh, like, a, like a DW movie. It feels yeah. like kind of, kind of realistic. Realistic? Uh, racist? Yeah. Uh, a lot of yeah. Ho- horses running around. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It reminded me of Adventures of Dolly in a little bit, uh, in a little bit just because mm-hmm. it's uh, uh, conniving, evil Romani people. Yeah. Um, uh, but it's... So going it, to Shimon is like, hey, we have racism in Europe, too. Thank you very much. <laughs> um, though it does touch back on uh, a theme that he has gotten to before, which is that it is good to give charity to beggars mm-hmm. um which um the basic framing of this movie is that a a woman and a man are eating at a diner and a romani woman comes up to them and is begging for money the the guy is about to give her money and then this woman like slaps it out of his hand and says no don't give it to her and then she basically like has a vision of all of the terrible things that the that would happen if the if uh if the jilted uh romani people uh would take revenge and so the the lesson at the end after the dream is concluded 
is uh, uh, give them money, you know? (laughs) (laughs) He's making his point in the worst way possible. (laughs) Yeah, Um, yeah. I mean, once it does just kind of turn into a the Shimoni movie with, like, monsters in bottles, Mm -hmm. it becomes a bit more enjoyable because then it's just like, hey, look at some cool effects and stuff. Yeah, some really Um, freaky monsters in this one, actually. Yeah. Um, This actually has some of some of the best looking like uh m- like double exposure stuff that i've seen and yeah like integrates like weird puppetry into it too it's in color which i think is more stencil colors knowing yeah. Shimon. yeah but it looks really really good like it looks almost like a kind of um some of the like the newer color processes processes yeah you know i was thinking about the color in this movie and it looks so much more real. This this pathé stencil coloring mm-hmm. looks so much more real than the hand painted colors or uh, kinema color, mm-hmm. right? Kinema yeah. color, which is supposedly you know it's based on the real colors that the cameras are shooting, but it looks strange and fantastical and weird yeah. because of the strange technology. But you're able to come up with real understated naturalistic colors even though they're fake with mm-hmm. um with the uh, pate color style yeah. and it was making me think because it had this dw griffith look to it in certain ways or or vibe to it um all of dw's movies or or dw's movies are generally black and white and sometimes have a little tinting but mm-hmm. um you know he goes for this real this realism uh that Almost, it seems like you could get even better doing this color method. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, it's true. This one also has a pretty notable, I thought anyway, like film technique, which is it has a um, a dolly in and out. Yeah, as a way of sort of showing the the sort of vision or dream that uh, the woman's having when she's imagining all these awful things going on but yeah it's like her sitting at a table and then the camera physically like dollies into her face and we get a uh dissolve into what she's imagining and then when she's done we get the opposite you know it dissolves back to her face and then dollies back out it's not the first instance of like a dolly move which as far as i can tell was photographing a female crook in 1904 by uh, mm, wallace right. mccutcheon but in terms of like using it as more of a like an actual storytelling technique i think that's pretty notable it was in photographing a female crook it was just sort of like it wasn't really necessary for like dramatic emphasis it was just sort of like uh just move the camera closer right right um there was another movie released the same year that does almost the exact same thing um this time uh to go in and out of a flashback which is the passerby Mm-hmm. By uh, Oscar Apfel, I yep. think. Yeah, for the Edison Company. Which uh, isn't a super notable movie outside of that. Yeah, just just the fact that it's like, alright, we're going into a flashback now and we dolly in and dissolve is... like It feels so much more advanced than a lot of the other kind of uh, camera techniques that we've been seeing. Mm-hmm. Speaking of cameras... <laughs> <laughs> I think one of the standout movies from this year is The Cameraman's Revenge. Ah, yeah. The Cameraman's Revenge. (laughs) By Vladislav Sterov... Oh, my God. I heard someone... Vladislav Sterovich. There you go. 
Um, I I watched uh, another Vox.com video about yep. him. Yeah. Um, which very much helped with the pronunciation of his name. Yeah, this is all stop motion, which is very cool. Yeah, not just being used for an effect, but like it's telling an entire story with yeah. stop motion. And it's made with uh, real insects that have been turned into puppets, which is a little morbid, but uh, is also cool. The The plot of it is uh, <laughs> there's Mr. and Mrs. Beetle are both carrying on affairs, and uh, the cameraman in this case is uh, a grasshopper who is a creep um, <laughs> and films M- Mr. Beetle uh, in a hotel room carrying on his affair. Uh, and then Mr. Beetle comes home and finds out about his wife's affair with an artist and the Beatles get into a fight and then they sort of make up and they decide to go to a movie, which of course then turns out to be the film shot by the creepy grasshopper. <laughs> um, and then it ends with the Beatles going to jail because Mr. Beetle goes into the projection room and has a fight with the grasshopper. Yeah. And then like the, the whole projection booth catches on fire. Oh. Um, the, the maybe the first depicted nitrate fire that we've seen. Oh, um, yeah. Kind of kind of uh meta as well. I mean, this is the first Is this the first like projector? No, it's not the first projector that I've seen that we've seen, but um mm. it was kind of neat seeing this kind of constructed 35 millimeter projector yeah. <laughs> being operated by a grasshopper. <laughs> yeah. The animation in this is insanely good. Yeah. Yeah. Um and, you know, it's like 10 minutes long. It's like a ton of mm-hmm. animation. Yeah. Um, and it's very intricate animation. Like, when the grasshopper sets up his camera on a tripod, it's like he, like, sets all the legs and hand cranks the camera. Yeah. There were full-on just, like, fight scenes between between bugs. Yeah. It's, um... <laughs> uh, and, and also, like, the subject is super, like, adult, too. Mm-hmm. Um uh, not even just in the themes, uh, uh, but like, you know, uh, or or not even just like what is being depicted, I guess. Right. Yeah. Uh, but um, but yeah, it's the themes of of. <laughs> it's all these bugs just have very adult lives. Like I'm seeing a yeah. bug like pack like a beetle like pack a suitcase and get in a taxi and like go to <laughs> go to a club, you know. <laughs> It's, yeah, I have yeah. in in my notes. I have written down: "This is a bug's life after dark." <laughs> also, to bring it back to the, bring it to bring it back to the Titanic, I also have written down: "Draw me like one of your French beetles." <laughs> oh yeah, I think I wrote that down too. <laughs> <laughs> um. Oh my god. Uh, uh, yeah. The the reason uh, the grasshopper isn't just a creep. Like the reason why um he's filming them is because like. Mr. Beetle goes to this uh, to the to the gay dragonfly nightclub, um, which I guess was a straight nightclub. Um, but there was a, a dragonfly dancer there, and <laughs> initially the grasshopper is trying to like chat up the dancer after she's done with her set. But then like Mr. Mr. Beetle like pushes the grasshopper out of the way, <laughs> and then takes her up to his hotel room, and so the grasshopper is so mad that he just decides to film them through a keyhole yeah. and use it to extort <laughs> Mr. Beetle. <laughs> it is funny that this is like kind of a, a seminal like stop motion animation film and it's 
It's not for children. No. I mean, I, I imagine that idea hadn't been built up at this point yet, mm-hmm. that animation is for kids, you know? Yeah, I was, I was reading up on uh, Vladislav Starovich, and um, it seems like he is pretty heavily responsible for kind of inspiring this whole kind of, like, future line of stop-motion animation. Supposedly, Willis O'Brien was inspired by uh, some of uh, Starovich's films, Willis O'Brien being the guy who did King Kong and Lost World, mm-hmm. who then inspired Weird Harryhausen, and, like, that's sort of, like, the whole, like, history of, of, or a big part of the history of stop-motion animation and film. And a lot of his later movies also uh, inspired later things like he has a film about uh foxes i think that is just just fantastic mr fox in terms of like the style of the puppets yeah yeah so i'm looking forward to seeing more stuff from him absolutely speaking of something that's not for kids something that's for kids uh and pretty good i guess is the land beyond the sunset oh i didn't watch that one. Oh, you didn't watch that one no so this was this was made with um in collaboration with the Fresh Air Fund, which is a, a, a charity that takes like underprivileged kids in New York City and, and lets them kind of go out and see nature and go live with like host families for the summer in, in the countryside. And uh, they have like a, like a summer camp and everything. And 100 years after this film came out, I worked for the Fresh Air Fund. Whoa. Um, their their camp is pretty close to my house, and I was like a lifeguard slash counselor there in 2012, which is 100 years after this came oh out. Oh <laughs> my god! Um, wow. Yeah, so it's 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 pretty good. I, I'd say it's actually a it's a pretty touching movie. It's about this kid who um, like he's a like a sad paper boy who who is barely scraping together a, a living. And he lives with his like alcoholic, abusive grandmother, um, and he uh, like she gets a, he gets like a gift from some passersby, and she like steals it to buy more booze. Uh, and eventually, he gets invited on this fresh air fund picnic, and like he goes out to to like a nice park and with all these other kids, and he gets read this story, and like you can tell that like. He's really touched by the whole situation, and um, the story that he gets read, they kind of flash like into uh, the the kind of fairy tale story that uh, that that one of the Fresh Air Fund people is reading to him, and it's about like a kid escaping from a wicked old witch, and all of these fairies save him. Then they put him on a boat, and. It said he needed no oars because his fairy friends were guiding the boat out to sea along the path of shining light to the land beyond the sunset where he lived happily ever after. So, like, you know, they all get on this, like, all him and all these fairies, like, they get on a boat and they just sail away and super happy. Um, and so this kid, you know, he heard the story and you as he's... A- after he listens, you see, like, a superimposed flashback to, like, his horrible his horrible life. And so, as everybody's kind of leaving the picnic area, he walks out to the beach near where they were picnicking, hops in a boat, and, like, sails away, basically. And that's that's the movie. It's, 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 quite, it's quite touching, I would say. Dang. I feel bad for not watching it now. I don't, I don't know how I missed that one. 
Yeah, yeah. I I think I might have skipped it if, if it weren't for my connection to it. <laughs> yeah, that's that's crazy. I mean, just the fact that it's 100 years exactly is, is pretty nuts, I think. Yeah. <laughs> Another person who made movies involving children is uh-huh. Alice Guy Blachet. Yes, that, I, that's a good transition. I like it. <laughs> and I did notice in, in her films from, from 1912, I did kind of notice a greater emphasis on stories about family and children. It's nothing new in her films, but it, it seemed like there was greater emphasis on them this year. And I, it just made me wonder if that is like a reflection that in real life, in 1912, she was then, she had gotten married, she had children... <laughs> Or if that was also just sort of like, she's making movies in America now. We got to have the family angle, you know? Right. Yeah. Um, I mean, well, I mean, she was pregnant with her second kid while she was uh, making a lot of these movies. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, so I guess that would, yeah, be on her mind. Not the most notable one that she made this year, but the one that I want to talk about the most because I loved it is The Detective's Dog. Okay, I thought you were going to... Okay, all right. Ah, <laughs> uh, the detective... I mean, from the title already, you know it's going to be good. Yeah, I think this is like the first the first movie that you watched from this year. You just jumped on it. You're like, the detective's dog? Oh yeah. my god. <laughs> um, is great. I was, I was reading about how it was sort of... Uh, it's about a detective who brings home a dog to uh, to his daughter, but then uh, is is tracking a criminal... Um, and falls into a dungeon, and so needs to get rescued by the dog. The whole being saved by a dog genre was already pretty played out. Hmm. Or was, like, a well-established, like, there were lots of movies about dogs saving people yeah. at this point. Rescued by Rover being a... Yeah. The, probably the biggest one. Yeah. Um, so I think it's funny that I was looking up, like, how it was, how it was received at the time, and even then people were like, all right, this this again. But this is my favorite one, just because there's so many details to it that, oh, I just, I love it so much. So the the detective is De- Detective Harper. We know that he is kind of a badass because he, he brings some d- dogs to his kids and also carries two revolvers. <laughs> the criminal that he's after is, is the no good uh, Richard Toole, which is mm-hmm. a great villain name. <laughs> um, he falls into a dungeon. He gets tied up. Uh on a like a, a table saw so that, that he's that he's sl- slowly yeah. drifting toward the table that, saw <laughs> the the richard tool just like ties him up to this thing and is like all right bye i'm gonna leave while you very slowly get pulled towards the saw blade i feel like that's heightened in such an elise gee way you know yeah um unfortunately the the actual ending of this movie is cut off it ends right after uh the, detec- the detective's dog saves him there was a longer ending um, but, uh, it was just them calling the police to catch Richard Toole. It wasn't like him teaming up with the dog to catch Richard Toole, which is too bad. Pretty disappointing. But because that wasn't in there now, that just played out in my head. So it's fine. The thing that I think really stuck out the most about this is the casting. It uses all of like the Elise Guy Blaché players that she mm-hmm. casts in almost all of her movies, but for whatever reason, this one, they really, like, hit their roles really well. The guy playing Richard Toole is just, like, perfectly kind of shifty and, like, sneaky looking. Yeah. Yeah, um, true. 
don't know. It was, just, it was great. There's there's a great moment of silent movie acting where um, the detective's wife shouts, The dog! And you can't hear what she's saying, but because she's shouting it, it's so obvious that she's just shouting, The dog! Ah. Um, also, I, I couldn't find that anywhere. I think it's lost. There was a sequel to this movie called Saved by a Cat. Oh my god. <laughs> Detective Harper returns to be easily captured by criminals once again. Only this time, he gets saved by a cat. <laughs> Amazing. Wow. And that one, apparently, he gets, instead of falling into a dungeon, he gets locked into a room with automatic doors that fills up with gas that knocks him out. <laughs> and I'm like, so much work went into these wild detective being saved by animal movies. Yeah, this very confident detective who just... Um... Immediately, up- like immediately gets incapacitated in some way and needs a pet to save him. This is also another movie where uh, s- some wife is like psychically knows that her husband is in trouble, mm-hmm. um, which I believe was in was that in the Nihilist? I mean, like a Wallace McCutcheon movie. It was also in that um, uh, there was like a western from a few years yeah. ago. Uh, the, um- yeah, that that is also a weird a weird recurring thing in a lot of these <laughs> old movies. I mean, I think like you know their storytelling is still getting there, and they realize mm-hmm. that they can't just have the the they don't realize yet they can't just have someone go. He must be in trouble, right? You know? Married couples do not have a psychic link necessarily. <laughs> well, where I thought you were going with that transition uh, <laughs> is is a, a much sadder movie about a kid, yeah, uh, which is Falling Leaves. Uh, also by Elise Guy Blachet. Yeah, um, this is one one of her more well known movies. I think I got the yeah, impression. Yeah, and I mean deservedly. I think it's fantastic. Yeah, it is um, very good. It's very it's very sweet and heartfelt. Yeah, um, yeah. It's like a similar kind of dramatic or melodramatic fare that you would get in a lot of other movies at this time. But I think it's played so well in this. It's very mm-hmm. well directed and well acted. Um, and the the basic setup of of it is that there there's like a family, a mother, an older sister, and a younger sister, and the older sister uh, gets consumption, and she is uh, kind of on death's door. And then the doctor visits uh, to to assess her her sickness. Uh, he says to the mother that when the like it's it's fall at the time, and he says when the last leaf falls, she will have passed away. Um, uh, basically, in a poetic way, saying that your your kid's gonna die soon, uh, and the younger kid who is like just unbelievably cute <laughs> in this movie, um, she overhears that, and she gets this misinterpreted idea of of what that means, and so she goes out and starts uh, taking all of the leaves that have fallen off the tree. And and trying to like tie them back onto the tree with the string. Uh, oh, it's so sad. <laughs> she wants to keep her sister alive, and so she she's trying to keep the leaves on the trees. Um, and yeah, she like the the kid is is so good. Uh, her name's Magda Foy. Uh, she she was called the Solax Kid at oh, the time. Wow. Uh, she plays this character, Little Trixie, and. <laughs> and so there's a parallel story happening that was established like before you get to the family of a doctor who has come up with a cure for consumption and while she's out there 
tying up the the the, the leaves, she runs into the doctor, and the doctor uh, comes in and and cures her older yeah. sister, and it's very it's very nice. <laughs> I did think my my one bit of like criticism towards it is the first thing we learn in the movie is a doctor has found a cure for consumption. That is the first scene. Yeah, and I'm like maybe they should have waited to reveal that until later. I don't know. <laughs> um, there was a lot of good kind of dramatic acting in this. There's a lot of uh, solemn head shaking going on. Mm-hmm. Um, this is uh, a good example of movies from this time period using uh, filters, um, like different color filters to show different things. So uh, day and night are, are shown as either black and white or uh, blue, blue filter for, for night. Which is funny because that's still kind of a thing now that it's like I just put a blue filter on it. It looks like night, <laughs> um, and it's like nighttime isn't actually blue. But um, filmmaker quibbles. Yeah, yeah. This one was good. I don't really have a lot to say about it other than just like, yeah, good job. Yeah, I I don't know. I mean, I I I honestly, when she was t- tying up those trees, I got kind of misty. You know, I was it, like, oh, yeah, it it gets you. Ooh. I think they really like build the pathos in this by there are a lot of these like really serious conversations about people living or dying happening between doctors and parents. But in the background of those scenes, you see this like innocent child who is looking around the corner and you can see that she's kind of understanding, but not fully. Yeah. And, uh, but she's very upset about the situation anyway. Very, very Uh, good. Yeah. Oh boy. Um, another Leesky movie is Making an American Citizen. Mm-hmm. Uh, this one I found very funny, which I think was the intention. Oh, really? Oh, yeah, yeah, I guess it was kind of funny, just that guy getting smacked around a bunch. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, this is about uh, a couple of sort of vaguely Eastern European immigrants who come to come to America and learn lessons in how to be American, all of which end up just involving the husband not treating his wife like shit <laughs> like all of yeah. them are just like hey you stop hitting your wife hey you don't make your wife do all the work hey you like don't treat your wife like a a pack animal yeah it's definitely dealing in some broad stereotypes uh about you know yeah. uh, i don't know eastern european misogynistic culture or whatever um but uh <laughs> it does however promote the idea that america is a place for gender equality yeah which i mean i think in 1912 the bar was pretty low so sort of like you know not hitting your wife with a stick was like you know progressive right right <laughs> and i mean this is coming from a recent em- immigrant to america yeah. who's making this movie and um yeah, so it, it's basically a bunch of scenes of him treating his wife poorly, and then uh, some good Samaritans happen to walk by at just the right time, yeah. including being just, like, lurking outside of his front door, um, <laughs> and uh, and then come and beat him up. Yeah, and it, almost all the lessons involve the husband just getting, getting thrashed by strangers. <laughs> thrashed by strangers. Um, which um, is very satisfying. Yeah, yeah. Uh, at the end, he's he he goes to jail. He's sentenced for six months, and while he's got a ball and chain around his ankle, and and <laughs> is uh, uh, he's just smashing rocks 
because that's what prisoners do. He just kind of has this revelation, and then the the movie declares that he is fully Americanized. (laughs) Um, So it's kind of this movie is kind of like, uh, like about assimilation being a good thing. Mm -hmm. Um, It's uh, a movie about why men should be chivalrous, which I guess is the um, I don't know an American thing at that time. Yeah. And apparently there was like a, a, an Americanization movement at this time, um, hmm. which uh, like in the 1910s, there were like tons and tons of immigrants to America. And there was, there was this kind of formalized thing to try and uh, make sure that they assimilate uh, from a couple of different groups. One of them being like the daughters of the American revolution, which is mm-hmm. sort of an icky group, but I guess, um, I don't know. Politically, it's a little weird, this movie. But I think that maybe gender-wise, it's doing the right thing. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Yeah. I guess another movie that uh, is is mostly a good thing is A Fool and His Money. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, A Fool and His Money, uh, which is the first uh, narrative film starring an all-black cast. Yeah. I mean, there was there was the kissing one earlier, but that isn't really a narrative film. Yeah, and there were those like kind of leering Edison movies about like yeah, you know, those don't black count. woman, you know, yeah. uh, those don't count at all. Bathing her baby, yeah, um, yeah. I mean, this one is is I think very notable for having an all black cast, and also for it being a story that is pretty independent from that fact. Like, the story is not dependent on race at all. Yeah. Yeah, it's a story about class. Yeah. Um, and it, it, it feels very much in line with Elise Guy's other sort of social satire, kind of class-based movies. I do think it's interesting that the reason why this movie has an all-black cast is because Elise Guy initially hired, I think, just the, the lead actor and a few others, and was going to pair them each with one of her, her usual uh, white actors. But all of the white actors refused to be in the movie um, because they thought it would, like, denigrate their honor or some shit. Um, and so she was like, all right, and just hired more black actors to replace them. Elise Guy is just the best. She is, she's, she's so cool. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, you find out, like, all of these uh, actors and directors that later they're palling around with fascists. And yeah. Elise Guy is just super progressive casually um in 1912 yeah so many filmmakers from this time like the more i learn about them the lower opinion of them i have and Eliski is the opposite i was just i was just uh, uh semi-related i was just seeing someone talking about how on the uh chanel website they have like a timeline of the chanel company and it glosses right over 1940 <laughs> to 1944 uh, um, some other stuff happened and then you know <laughs> which i wasn't aware that the, uh, the founder of chanel was uh, an operative well like act as acted as a nazi right. operative like a yeah. spy or something so <laughs> yeah <laughs> but yeah this movie um its, it's original title was called dark town aristocrats which is less Worse less good (laughs) yeah it it is it is very much still a film of its time i think 
Like, yeah. it definitely doesn't play as progressive now. <laughs> um, I think there is there is still a degree of, of caricature going on. Especially in the ways of speaking of the characters. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Whenever we see, not in the, in the intertitles, uh, but anytime there's writ, there's like something someone's written. Yeah. Um, it's in kind of broken English, which is not, not a great look. Yeah, it's like this really like exaggerated AAVE. Um, but eh. other than that, yeah. Um, I do think the like the the actual broad story it's telling about, uh, like how people treat treat people differently depending on on money. Yeah, uh, sort of gets gets at a pretty real truth that is still pretty relevant. And it's it's also it's this is one of the few films to kind of. I feel like all of the other American films have come from a very specific viewpoint, whereas this is actually kind of depicting America more as it actually existed, which hmm. is just to say had had people in it that weren't super white. That's true. Yeah, I mean, just by nature of the industry itself, there was a lot of, like, implicit or, or, or like, um, byproduct exclusion of certain people. Yeah. Yeah, so the basic... Uh, the basic st- story of this it's another movie about two guys fighting over one lady (laughs) um is uh that uh sam's the protagonist and and he he fancies lindy and uh she she fancies william jackson who is very wealthy uh he he sulks and finds a wallet on the ground and then he's suddenly wealthy uh uh, from all of this money that he found in the wallet, but he doesn't, um, he doesn't want to like, just give it a, like, he seems like it would seem suspicious. So he writes this note that says that he inherited money from his uncle and plans a trip to New York to make it like, not seem suspicious that he suddenly got all this money. And on his trip to New York, he just buys, he buys all of these, you know, fancy clothes and, you know, nice, nice objects. And including from the money that he found in a wallet, buys an entire <laughs> car. <laughs> um, and that was uh, apparently Elise Guy's car that he was driving. <laughs> um, uh, and, uh, yeah. <laughs> he he <laughs> drives by Lindy's house twice. Yeah. Which is Just... Elise Guy's house, actually. Oh, really? I didn't yeah. know that. That's yeah. cool. Um, and so suddenly Lindy is, is interested in him because he, he's driving around in this fancy automobile. Literally like so pathetic though. Like, you know, he gets the car and then he just drives back and forth in front of her house. (laughs) (laughs) Very, very, a very high schooler move. Yeah. And then, you know, because a fool and his money are easily parted is, I believe the phrase, Mm. um, uh, William Jackson. Oh my God! And when when he t- when she picks him again over William Jackson, he will let you see you see him. Uh, you see William like just staring in the window, just like glaring <laughs> yeah. at them, which is so funny <laughs> through the window, just looking in. Yeah. Um, and uh, eventually, uh, William Jackson uh, comes up with a kind of gambling scheme to. Uh, turn the tables once again yeah and uh and and so he loses sam loses all of his money in the poker game and uh and then goes back to his job of being a painter yeah and then the movie's over (laughs) it's a fun it's a fun little story with uh, like honestly 
look at like William Jackson looking through the window, uh, yeah. like made me scream. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, so it was pretty funny. Yeah. But another really interesting kind of satire, I guess, kind of social satire that Aliski did was Algy the Minor. Yeah, this this movie I think made me kind of commit even further to my idea that like Aliski is trying to put explicit queer coding into movies. I mean, this is definitely queer coded. Yeah, yeah. Like this is the one where it's like, all right, this is not. I can't just be like, oh, it's because she's French. Yeah, I mean, I think he... So it's it's this very, like, effeminate man. Um, Algy. Uh, Algy. He's who not a played, swamp man. Who but. was played by the same actor as the 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 gay cowboy in um, uh, Parsons. Oh. Soon. he. I guess he just plays gay cowboys. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, I, it's it's hard to say, like, how much he is being made fun of here. I mean, I think a lot of it is the comedy is, is making fun of him being like a sissy basically. Yes. No, it, a lot of the comedy is definitely at his expense. I think, um, um, although he is the main character and the movie does have, does paint him as sort of the, uh, I don't know if necessarily a heroic figure, I guess a, a somewhat heroic figure. Yeah. Yeah. The basic setup of this is that, uh, the, uh, he he's trying to win the hand in, in marriage of of this lady. So, but his her dad thinks that he's like not enough of a man to marry his daughter, and so he 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 says that um, you have to prove yourself to be a man within a year, and then I'll let you marry my daughter. <laughs> uh, so he heads off west to become a cowboy to prove himself as a real man. But he's extremely effeminate. Yeah, uh, he he wears a lot of makeup, and uh, he's got like this tiny girly gun, and like these basically limp limp wristed, I would say, in the movie. Mm-hmm. Um, and he's got like these kind of fancy clothes and and uh, and uh, uh, and gloves and whatnot. And when he arrives in the West, he actually like kisses the cowboys as a thank you mm-hmm. for uh, giving him direction. <laughs> and they're like, hey, what are you doing? <laughs> yeah, he, he, in 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 the western town, he meets Big Jim, mm-hmm. who's like this big, gruff cowboy type, and I guess come to an agreement that Big Jim is going to teach him how to how to be a, a proper, a proper man? I don't know. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And yeah, there's like, a thing where, yeah, like, Big Jim gives him, like, a bigger gun. That's subtle. Um, <laughs> uh, and so that, yeah, there's a, but there's a, a scene a little later on where Big Jim is getting waylaid by, by some, some bandits and, uh, Algy fights them off. Um, it's sort of like the whole kind of second act of the movie is them, them like learning from each other and kind of coming to this like respect for, it's like, Oh, like we're not so different after all kind of thing. Yeah, and I mean, you know, it the movie makes fun a lot of Algy's effeminateness, but I think that like th- there's a scene that happens toward the middle of the movie where Big Jim is like racked by his alcoholism mm-hmm. and he is having a really rough time and Algy cares for him and that's like sort of when he starts to kind of see him as an equal, I guess, or respect yeah. him. Um which I guess is is showing some of the benefit of like the more feminine side of algae yeah it's it, it it is another i think example of like 
it doesn't really read as progressive from a, a a modern viewpoint, but I think for the time it was pretty. It definitely stands out from a lot of the other movies that we're watching in terms of like I don't know minority representation. Yeah, another movie that uh, Aliski did not direct but produced uh, is The Sewer. Oh, I didn't watch this one. Uh, the Sewer is is not a terribly interesting movie from a plot perspective. It is. Uh, the plot invo- involves uh, street urchins who are forced to steal from a philanthropist. There's also chunks missing from it that doesn't really help the coherence of it. The philanthropist ends up getting kidnapped um, and has to escape through the sewer, thereby the title being the sewer. The actual sewer stuff is really cool, I think, for the time, because it it's one of the only movies we've watched other than like a handful that really uses shadows. Hmm. Um, and so he's going through this whole, all these different sewer sets and the set design is really cool. It's kind of like, there's like painted backdrops of like vanishing point tunnels. There's like grates, there's live rats and like water in the bottom of it. But all the sewer scenes are lit in this way where like the background is lit. Then the, the middle ground is entirely in shadow and then the, the foreground is lit again. So he's oftentimes the, philanthropist characters walking from the background into the foreground and will sort of pass through this section of darkness Ooh. and get silhouetted. You know, it's, it's very simple, like layering of light. Um, but that combined with the set design really makes it stand out uh, from a lot of the other stuff we've watched. It makes the movie look maybe even 10 years newer than it is. Um, wow. Thinking about I'll movies, from, 19, that out. thinking about movies from 1922, it's like they've really embraced this sort of like much more shadowy, lighting style um i mean it's too long i think it's like 15 or 18 minutes and it it could easily probably be like eight minutes right um the whole movie is kind of an excuse just for these cool sewer scenes it feels like but um the sewer stuff is is really cool yeah i mean at this point solax is making like two or three movies a week i think yeah so (laughs) insanity uh, yeah (laughs) well you want to move on to hmm. the the dreaded the dreaded D.W. D.W. Griffith. <laughs> I mean, I I did think his movies from this year were, were more watchable. That's true. They were not about the Civil War. Thank God. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just like, just make crime movies, man. Like, that's a much better lane for you to be in. He's not going to listen to me. One, because he's dead. And also because he's most famous for making a Civil War movie. But yeah, there are some some uh some some pretty enjoyable ones from him this year yeah yeah i um i i quite like this output again i I breathed a bit of a sigh of relief yeah yeah me too i was like after each one i was like oh (laughs) Um, um well we could talk about uh the massacre which right is the um, most problematic of them all (laughs) it's the most problematic but like I think it shows a lot of his chops that he's gotten yeah. from making all these war movies. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a movie that um, I was really impressed by in comparison to a lot of the kind of bigger epics, the Italian movies, um, how this shot giant battle scenes, but made them feel so much more intense and personal. Mm-hmm. Um Whereas the, the the Italian movies, they just shoot two hundred people from really far away, and and there's no there's no 
it 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 feels like you're watching nothing be- right. in a way. Whereas I, I was noticing the way that there's a few battle scenes in this in this movie, the massacre, and a lot of it is composed out of these like sensibly arranged small scenes uh, within the battle. Uh, so you're getting a real sense of who is in it mm-hmm. and what is happening. And when it cuts to the big scenes, it makes those big scenes feel even more meaningful. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And so he's shot a lot of Civil War battle scenes. And so I think he's got a really, he's actually got a really good sense for it. Yeah, for sure. Um, I think the, this is maybe like the biggest scope of a movie that we've seen. It's definitely yeah. up there. Yeah. Um, and I think a lot of that has to do with just the sheer number of people on screen. The fact that a lot of them are on horses, mm-hmm. kicking up clouds of dust and like uh, shooting guns in in giant wide shots shot from like up a mountain. Yeah. Yeah, I think that like intercutting between those huge shots, which are like show you all this spectacle and all of these extras, but then intercutting that with the 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 stuff that's like right in your face or right in the face of the actors. Yeah, I almost didn't watch this one, so I appreciate you mm. uh, telling me to. The first five minutes of it, though, do feel like a comedy, which I don't think is intentional. <laughs> Because it's just like a... Well, it's setting up yet another, like, love triangle sort of thing, which yeah. I'm like, I watched this one, and I was like, D.W. Griffith definitely, like, lost a girlfriend to someone else and just won't, won't let won't it go. Won't let go. Like, this for sure happened to him, because he puts it in everything. Yeah. But yeah, I don't know, there's, like, the setup of the plot is there's there's a, a woman living off on the frontier, and there's this, like, military scout that wants to marry her, but then there's also this sort of uh, cultured, well-dressed city man, I guess. (laughs) Um, And he ends up also proposing to her about five minutes later. Less than that, like 30 seconds later. Um, And and then the the military scout hears hears it, like, from the front door and kind of rushes out with his gun out and then, like, sees them two hugging and he's like oh never mind and like puts his gun away in the background (laughs) without them seeing him and then immediately afterwards like she says yes to the other guy's proposal and and they hug but when when they hug the uh the the man grabs like a bunch of branches from a a tree accident like he's sort of they're standing next to it a bunch of branches and he grabs onto the branches when he hugs her and it cuts away right as he's like realizes it and starts like swatting the branches away. <laughs> but it like cuts right as that's starting, so it's like, oh, we don't need to see that. Yeah, I mean, I uh, uh, I thought that the initial proposal was kind of funny because he asks her like, "Do you want to marry me and go out west?" And you can see her reaction. She's kind of like, eh. <laughs> she's like, <laughs> you know, <laughs> not really. <laughs> and then she gets a better proposal five minutes later, and yeah. she jumps on that seconds later like immediately afterwards <laughs> yeah she's like let me step outside to think about it and then... <laughs> i think two years passed through a uh, intertitle mm-hmm. and uh the the military scout is part of a a cavalry party that just decides to massacre a native american camp seemingly for no reason yeah um, surprise attack just these people chilling and I mean, the movie at the very least kind of depicts the the Native Americans as human beings, um, 
with like babies getting getting killed in the in the gunfire. Yeah, it really lingers on the shot of their dead bodies. I think it's, you know, not it's not on this guy's side exactly. Yeah, for... it's not it's not trying to make it seem morally justified in any in any way. Yeah. Um but then the rest of the movie after that is sort of more focused on the the counterattack, the the revenge massacre as it were, which feels just a little bit more bleh, DW Griffithy. <laughs> well, I mean, I, I think this movie speaks to what we saw in Ramona, which is that he has some real sympathy for Native Americans, and he doesn't see them with as much hate as mm. he does black people. Yeah. Because um, I think this movie isn't really taking a side, exactly. Um, yeah, it it is much more in the court, sort of war-bad film, yeah. which... He also has done a lot of those where he's not really taking a moral side on one way or the other. He's just sort of like, this conflict is bad because it's killing people. Yeah, and there's a big battle, and uh, uh, the the woman now has a child, and before the battle starts, her husband has to go away for some reason. And so the initial suitor ends up um, like protecting her um, and the baby, uh, and... Uh, in in this very long drawn out battle, which I think is done pretty well, um, he eventually just like they're all kind of cornered, encircled by Native Americans on horses, and they're just getting picked off one by one until they turn into like a big pile of dead people. Uh, and so he finally dies on top of her, and she's like huddled under these dead bodies, and. <laughs> When the husband gets back, he he thinks that she's dead, and then he goes, "No, wait!" And they 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 peel off the initial suitor. And well, then... Yeah, there's there's a <laughs> a really great shot where he's looking at this like mound of dead bodies, and then we just see a hand emerge from the center of it, <laughs> um, and they're like, "Oh no, she's still alive!" But it's the reveal of that I thought was was well done. Yeah, most of the other movies that I think we watched from. DW from this year are like crime films. Yeah, contemporary crime films. I think we should probably get to the one that I know we both want to talk about the most, which is For His Son. Oh, yes. Which is all about cocaine. <laughs> oh my god, I was so pleased with this movie. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, this reminded me a lot of the, like, um, uh, the sort of moralizing anti-alcohol films from, yeah. from earlier, mm-hmm. only this time about cocaine. But weirdly, like, very heavily focused on Coca-Cola mm-hmm. and the fact that Coca-Cola initially had cocaine in it in, yeah, in this small is like amounts. A, this is like a direct takedown of Coca-Cola. <laughs> it is. Um, even though Coca-Cola, I think, stopped including the cocaine parts of the coca leaf uh, in 1904, they started extracting the cocaine parts before they would put it into the the drink. Hmm. I don't really yeah. know how that works. Like, what part of the leaf is the cocaine part, and what part is the soda part? I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. I read I read 1906. Maybe 1906 like banished it, but maybe Coca Cola hmm. stopped earlier. Um, um, but either yeah, way, I, by 1912, it was it was done. Yes. Um, 
Oh, where do you even start with this movie? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's about it's about I guess like an inventor. Yeah, I think um, he's, a, oh, no, he's, it's, a doctor. he's a doctor, and he yeah. he invents a a soft drink um, called Dopa Coke. Dopa Coke. Dopa Coke. Um, Dopa Coke. And the reason he does this is so that he'll have money to give to his terrible deadbeat son, who just always asks him for money. Yeah, it's like, oh, he wants to provide for his son. I don't know how to do it uh, without putting cocaine in soda. (laughs) 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 Um, And then the son, of course, ends up becoming addicted to to Dopa Coke, drinking it in the the soda saloons. I'm going to keep saying it because... I lost it. I lost it. <laughs> Dopa Coke. His his. his <laughs> I saw somebody talking about this movie, and they were saying like, I you know, I don't think he intended it to be funny, but it oh, no. so is. You know, <laughs> no, th- this whole movie is very funny, and none of it was in- intended to be. Yeah, I guess in a reefer madness sort of way. Yeah. Um. And yeah, I mean the the son naturally then becomes a like. In, uh, like crazed cocaine addict from drinking the <laughs> the soda, which I don't I don't know if anyone actually became like an actual cocaine addict from drinking Coca Cola. I kind of doubt it because I don't think there was very much of like the narcotic cocaine in Coca Cola. I don't know. I mean, it it, it might have contributed to the addictiveness. I mean, mm-hmm. and, and like this, like at least that's what the movie was asserting because yeah. you know there's this whole. You know, oh, Dopa Coke selling so well, but there's this whole, uh, uh, I don't know, shadow over the whole thing because you know that it's for the wrong reason. And these people yeah. are getting their getting their fixes and going wild for all the cocaine. And, and, <laughs> and, and, and you know, you, there's a scene at a, uh, there there are some scenes that they keep re- re- uh, returning to at the Dopa Coke like shipping factory where they're just sending out boxes and boxes of Dopa Coke and then you see these <laughs> people like hotcakes. <laughs> you see these people at a soda jerk and they're like, Give me that Dopa Coke, I need it <laughs> and it's it's a it's a uh super popular uh, place and you see all of these people just fr- in a frenzy over it. Apparently at this time people were like concerned about all sorts of additives to sodas and uh, like the, the caffeine and cocaine were kind of like, e- equally scorned by a mm. lot of people. Um, uh, th- this is a a drink being invented by a doctor, and so I was like, "Oh, is this guy Dr. Pepper?" You know. Um, <laughs> but apparently, Dr. Pepper was made in response to this because, like, Dr. Pepper's early selling point was doesn't have caffeine, doesn't have cocaine, doesn't have heroin or iron. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. I was reading about like the invention of Coca-Cola and I do think it's, it's kind of amusing that this, this movie feels so akin to the sort of anti-alcohol films when Coca-Cola was initially marketed as a temperance drink. As this thing of like, Hey, temperance is a whole thing. Here's a drink you can drink that doesn't have any alcohol in it, just cocaine. (laughs) (laughs) Amazing. The son and the the doctor's secretary both turn into these just frazzled junkies. Um, Yeah, with, like, gray, like, frizzy hair. Yeah. And, like, 
Yeah, they bec- they age like 30 years overnight. And so he elopes with her. They start just living in a hovel, drinking tons of soda. <laughs> well, I think I think the the that's right. The intent yeah. is at that point they're they're actually like injecting cocaine into themselves. Yeah, that, yeah, I forgot about that. There's a there's a point where he starts like kind of pointing to his arm, and he he was he originally had a different fiance, and she finds. Uh, a needle like he accidentally drops a, a hypodermic yeah. needle that he uses to inject the cocaine and um and he's like oh no i use put it in my arm so you should try it and then she's <laughs> too freaked out um and yeah i think he like swipes from his dad a big a big jar yeah. of cocaine that it says, says poison cocaine. It. yeah it says poison cocaine <laughs> <laughs> when he's in this hovel with with the uh the secretary that he has eloped with uh, he there's a point where he just kind of has a heart attack and spontaneously dies of cocaine, and mm-hmm. um, and his dad finds his body and and cries, and then the movie's over. Yeah, well, and there are some, especially right at the end, there are some I thought hilariously sort of over explanation uh, intertitles that are just like this is what you're supposed like this is what is happening, and this is how you're supposed to feel about it. Like just so blatantly on the nose Uh, i don't remember exactly the wording of them but they made me laugh (laughs) this movie's this movie's a lot of fun (laughs) it is yeah i do think like in comparison to the alcohol movies i feel like it it kind of does a better job portraying what the actual dangers of substance abuse are because i feel like in the alcohol Hmm. movies they would they would usually i don't know i feel like they didn't do a great job of actually selling like the parts of alcoholism that are actually scary. Hmm. Whereas this movie is actually like cocaine is super addictive and (laughs) will kill you if you do too much of it. It's like, yeah, okay. That, that does track. Yeah. And like the acting too, they get all like fidgety and they start sniffing a bunch, you know? Uh, Um. so the act, the acting was pretty good. (laughs) I mean, actually, um, I was looking a bit into Coca-Cola too. And this is, this is like kind of more based on Coca-Cola even than it seems because, the son of the inventor of Coca-Cola uh, was an alcoholic who died uh, after being discovered unconscious with opium. Wow! Uh, so, so like the yeah, it was very, like an very opium, topical. an opium overdose. This was in 1894. Mm-hmm. Uh, that that the son of the the inventor of Coca-Cola died from. So, this is really just the Coca-Cola story, but yeah. swap it out a little bit for dope um, Yeah. I think it's also like it, it it touches a little bit on DW's kind of anti anti corporate ways in mm-hmm. a bit like um anti big company ways I guess because it it focuses a lot on the immoral decisions that were made for the sake of money like they didn't care that cocaine was dangerous and addictive because it made them tons of money yeah. this is um, um a corner in soda <laughs> We've got a corner in wheat, a corner in rubber, and a corner yeah. in soda. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> the trilogy. Yeah. <laughs> Although a corner in rubber wasn't directed by D.W. Griffith. No. Had similar vibes, though. Yeah. Um, one movie I, I want to touch upon just kind of very briefly, kind of just to complain about it, is The New York Hat, um, which is another hat movie. Mm-hmm. Magni 12 probably being the peak of the hat craze. Hmm. Um, 1912 or 1913, like just pre World War One. Um, this is a Mary Pickford movie. 
Yeah, she's where, back at Biograph. Yeah, and she is like a, a, a poor woman who wants uh, a nice hat with a big, with a, just a whole dead bird on it, which was a real thing. Um, and it's this like it's this very somber drama about this poor woman who like can't afford this nice hat, and then uh, a preacher buys it for her because he made a promise to her dying mother. But then, like, her wearing the hat causes all this scandal in the town because they think... Yeah. I'm not entirely sure why. I guess they just think, like, it's in a... Like, the, the pastor's trying to court her and that's inappropriate yeah, or something. Yeah, like, her, her dad finds the hat and, like, punches it to death because he's like, no, no big hats for you. <laughs> but the, the whole thing is just this, like... If this was a comedy, it would work so much better, I think. It's... D.W. Griffith robs it so much of, robs it from so much of its potential just by being so dour. Yeah. It's like, this is a story about a woman getting a a big hat and then the town getting mad at her for it. And it's treated (laughs) as this, like, it's treated with as much, like, intensity (laughs) as the cocaine movie. Yeah. (laughs) And no one dies in it, but it still is just like, geez, all right, like, it's just a hat, you know? If it had been done as... Uh, as more of a satire, it would have worked better. A satire of hat culture, you mean? Yeah. Hmm. Um, but D. W. Griffith cannot do comedy, so. Yeah, and don't don't try and get D. W. to do satire because you don't know what you're gonna get. <laughs> <laughs> um, the only other movie that I think I have really anything to say about that he made this year is The Musketeers of Pig Alley. Mm-hmm. Which is a great title. It is a great title, although I, I wish there were more muskets in it. Mm. <laughs> it's mostly um, pistols. <laughs> yeah. I, I did like this one, though. This one, according to MoMA and also YouTube, is often identified as the first gangster film, which it is not. Nope. We watched that one. That was The Black Hand in 1906, directed by Wallace McCutcheon. Mm-hmm. Um, it is interesting that both that film and this one were both shot by Billy Bitzer. Oh really? Yeah, I didn't. I didn't know that the other one was. I mean, I guess you could call this the first gangster drama because The Black Hand was a comedy about gangsters. Was it a comedy? I mean, kind of. Well, okay, it certainly wasn't as like dour and dramatic as D.W. likes to get. But I feel like the kind of bumbling gangsters in the The Black Hand, hmm. where like you know their their writing's all scribbly because they're stupid and and you know they get caught by yeah. a, a trick of people hiding in a fridge um, with a big window in it yeah <laughs> um i think i mean all of that is very true i think that is more just a sign of how dramatic films were in 1906 versus 1912 yeah yeah you might be right about that this one's got kind of not a convoluted plot but it all comes together nicely at the end but in the middle of it i was like where is this movie going it involves uh, a married couple living in like a, a a tenement building in New York City, which that that stuff is kind of cool. Like seeing a like a contemporary depiction of like poor housing in New York City. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. Yeah, I think it was shot in New Jersey, but um. Wait, really? I just I just thought that was interesting. Yeah, like wow. like all of all of DW's movies, but uh, they they sort of run afoul, I guess of uh this this gangster whose name is snapper kid which is a great name <laughs> yeah and there's this whole thing where like 
Snapper Kid is, like, trying to put the moves on the wife, but then she pushes him away, but then, like, Snapper Kid later saves her from getting drugged in the, like, the gangster hangout bar. Um, and then he, he also steals the husband's wallet. Yeah, the reason they're at the gangster's ball is because they're trying to yeah. gain some intel on... <laughs> so it's on... The, the gangster's ball. <laughs> all right, all right, boys, we're having a ball tonight. Uh, it's because they're trying to gain some intel on who stole the husband's wallet. Yeah. Um, and then they get themselves into a whole mess. The climax of the movie is this big, like, gunfight in the titular pig alley with, like, the snapper kids gang and then, like, the, the rival gang. And then he ends up kind of making friends with the married couple. And they, like, kind of get him out of being arrested. And then he's like, wink, wink, I'll, I'll take care of yous. We're, yeah. we're friends now. See, <laughs> consider yourself under the protection of the snapper gang. <laughs> <laughs> Pretty much. There's some really cool uh, cinematography in this one. Mm-hmm. Particularly one shot. I would say. Yeah. Um, right before that shot, there is like a shot of the the rival gang kind of coming through a door, and we see the 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 shadow of one of them projected onto the door before he walks in. Mm. Um, which is a cool thing that I feel like we haven't seen much of that kind of foreboding shadow precedes a character's entrance sort of thing. Hmm. Um, but then, yeah, there's a, there's a really cool shot of, of snapper and his, and his goons sneaking along a wall and they start kind of in the background and as it, and snapper gets all the way up right in the lens. Yeah. Um, like an extreme close up of his face. Um, and we get not, I don't think the first, but probably the most noticeable, like, focus shift. In a As movie. he gets closer to the camera, you mean? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it looks, it looks that's good. Neat. Yeah. This is also um, uh, a movie by, uh, with, uh, the, the, the wife is played by Lillian Gish. Oh, right, 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 right. She's about to pop off. She's, mm-hmm. she's, she and her sister are going to be real big. Yeah. Um, her sister also appearing in this movie as an extra oh. that apparently it was a, it was a big deal. There's, there's a scene when Lillian is Lillian Gish is exiting her apartment building and walks past another woman on the street and they kind of look at each other. Mm-hmm. And apparently people who saw this movie was like, who is that other gal? And it's, and then it was like, Oh, it's their sister. Hmm. Uh, I'll just like briefly mention the unseen enemy, which is, Another DW movie, and it's the debut of Lillian and Dorothy Gish. Um, and it's another, like, Lonely Villa-type remake. <laughs> uh, this time with five different locations that are being intercut oh with each other. Oh, my um, God. <laughs> and the the one thing that I want to say that, that's notable about this movie, um, besides uh, that it is the debut of Lillian Gish and Dorothy Gish, is that... Um, D.W. Griffith, during the filming, was not satisfied with how scared they looked at the robbers trying to come and attack them. Oh, boy. And so the director, D.W. Griffith, whipped out a pistol and started chasing them around the set to try and make them be more scared. Um, <laughs> he was, like, yelling at them to, to like, act more scared, act more scared. Oh and then he just started pointing a gun at them. Um. Well, I guess that takes the cake from uh, Kubrick then in terms of 
abusing an actor to get them to look scared. <laughs> right. Yeah, seriously. Well, I think it's time for the sad part. <laughs> it's time for the sad part. <sighs> it is time to say goodbye to Georges Méliès. Uh, <laughs> his last films. His his very last films. His swan song. Made for Pate um after he bought after they bought Star Films and no one wanted to watch Melies movies anymore and they all tanked. They were all edited away from his control and uh and, and this was it. Yeah. Um the the filmmaking in in Melies's last few movies does feel very kind of stiff and stagey and old fashioned at yeah. this point. Yeah. Um compared to the much more kind of kinetic styles we've we've seen but it is still it's it's very sad to see just like he's he's not gonna make anymore (laughs) it's funny Um, i mean you know of course we have a a soft spot for meliers there there have been other directors who have come and gone like wallace mccutcheon who's dead at this point yeah uh who we just kind of forgot about you know oh there are no more of these credits he did the first gangster movie yeah yeah um Uh, but yeah, it, it it hurts to say goodbye to yeah. to Papa George. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I it is somewhat bittersweet this time though because he at least is going out with at least one like giant fantasy adventure epic. Yeah, which I think is one of his best in years, honestly. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Um, um and that is Conquest of the Pole. Yeah. Um. And it, yeah, it it feels kind of like a return to form a bit because I feel like the last couple of years, any movies he's done have been much smaller scale, kind of like trick films or like little like wizard summons a, a statue film, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, whereas this is like a, a, like a full narrative. It's, I mean, it's probably as big and ambitious as anything that he's done. Yeah, I mean, um, it's the longest movie that he's made, that he ever mm-hmm. made. It's half an yeah. hour long. Um, although, <laughs> it wasn't the longest... We'll, we'll get to Cinderella in a second, which is another movie, <laughs> but that was originally longer, and then it was cut down. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's got a lot of... Um, it's kind of like a Jules Verne pastiche, in the way mm-hmm. that a lot of his classics are. Um, it's got It's like a kind of a travel movie, uh it's it's an adventure thing it's got some cool effects and and yeah. uh stage work a lot of a lot of like practical effects and like set stuff yeah um i think Melies is is probably most well known for his early visual effects stuff mhm maybe may this movie might be the peak of his practical effects because it has the snow giant yes um which is a humongous marionette that i believe was operated by around a dozen people yeah uh some of whom were inside of its head operating its eyes and mouth and the smoke coming out of its Uh. pipe uh and then there were people above the camera with strings moving its arms around uh it's so good it looked enormous and super cool (laughs) yeah i mean it's it like picks like grabs people with giant hands yeah so it's like you can fully see that this is like two stories tall yeah, um, it, it made me really wish that I got the chance to see the King Kong Broadway show from like a year or two ago. Oh, yeah, um, where they had like I'm the enormous. Genuinely upset ape. that I didn't see that. 
<laughs> um, I mean, I'm, yeah. I'm a, I'm a huge King Kong fanboy. Um, although my, my favorite thing, having never seen it, my favorite thing about it is that I could walk through Times Square and see King Kong on a big marquee, <laughs> which just made me so happy. Yeah. <laughs> so yeah, this is this is roughly based on all of the adventurers who have been making treks to the North and South Poles um, mm-hmm. in the last couple of years. Um, uh, this feels almost a little bit similar to uh, the um, tunneling the English Channel. How so? Um, just in, the, in that it feels like it's it's very kind of contemporary, like t- topical satire. Uh, yeah, yeah, I would say so. Um, um, there's a there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of uh, satirical stereotyping going on. Uh, yeah, that's not a little not bit in less great ways. Tasteful um, part. <laughs> there, I think there's a particular focus on suffragettes, which it seems weird that he's like singling them out as as like silly and foolish. Yeah, I mean, I kind of expected better from him to a little bit, yeah, be um, uh, uh, using suffragettes as just like this the butt of a joke about how mm-hmm. uh, how they're kind of. Like, let me be included. I, I, I deserve to be included in the movie going, ha ha, you're dumb, you know? Which is also weird because, like, in, I think, The Fantastic Voyage, like, he has a bunch of men and women as part of this adventure, and it's, like, not addressed or even a thing. Yeah. And now he's making women trying to be included on this big adventure as, like, like Psh, no, get out of here. You, you're, you're ladies. You can't go in a balloon. Well, yeah, I mean, it's another kind of torn from the headlines thing because i think that in addition to adventurers going to the north and south pole like suffragettes were really in the news at this time Uh, i believe like this is around the point where in the uk a lot of the suffragettes started like bombing things uh, uh to 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 get their way you know uh so it seems like the main suffragette is like based on uh, the, the kind of founder of the movement, Emmeline Pankhurst. Um, and yeah, like they were, they were like militant and they were like getting in people's way, which I think a lot of men, I, you know, I don't think Melies hated them, uh, but he uh, maybe saw them as uppity. <laughs> yeah. That's kind of the vibe I got from it a bit. It does almost feel like Melies is going out of his way to like skewer just every like any demographic in this movie like he includes we go so- after everyone <laughs> it it does kind of feel that way though because he's just got like characters representing whole countries that are just showing up and being just the most like absurd outsized caricature of that country possible yeah big broad characters it feels like a kind of like goofy 50s movie in that way like it's a madman mad mad world mm-hmm. um yeah. of just like these just broad caricatures and, and people all like a gaggle of people all like racing to get somewhere, you know, Melies talked later about how, uh, there wasn't any footage from the North pole or like people who had like proven that they'd been there. Cause I think that was a mm. little contentious at this time that, yeah. uh, uh, people had not like fully proven that they were at the, 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 yeah. the North pole. Uh, and so he said, like, I just made my own, you know? <laughs> yeah, and it's... I mean, yeah, his his North Pole looks like it could be the moon 
or Jupiter or yeah. you know any of the planets that he's he's gone to. Like it's <laughs> it's another just sort of like fantasy scape. Yeah, which is which is a lot of fun. Yeah, it was a bit a bit disheartening to hear this movie made no money and no one saw it when it came out. Yeah, unfortunately, because a lot of this movie is just so fun, so classically Melies. I mean, when you get past the the suffragette bit, and when you get past all of the like racial stereotypes, which like there's there's one for America that's named Buff like <laughs> named after Buffalo Bill. Mm-hmm. There's Schokrautman from Germany. <laughs> um, uh, somebody named Cerveza from Spain. Yeah, I uh, shouldn't laugh at any of these. They're all pretty bad. <laughs> It's it's a kind of a postmodern laugh of how yeah. of how racist it is. <laughs> uh, Ching Chun from China and Kakoku from France, um, and then the guy or, or Kakoku from Japan, uh, and then Run Ever, which I, it must be some joke that I'm not getting from England. Yeah, I feel like that's a pun that I don't understand. Yeah, um, and he's bluff, allo, Bill, like hello mm. in French. But yeah, once you get past all of that, great. Great Melies. Super fun. It it does feel like a kind of um, a swan song, a sort of going out with a bang, like this is his last big, like wacky fantasy movie. Yeah. Although he made three more uh, in 1912. Yeah. The next being Cinderella, which is his his second Cinderella movie. Yeah. Kind of a remake of, Mm -hmm. of the 1899 one. Although I don't think I like this one as much as the the eighteen ninety nine one. It's a little slow and it's weird. It feels very like for a movie of this length that's um like twenty five minutes, it feels like very economical, uh, even though uh it's all just happening very slowly. Like mm-hmm. it's all it's all plot stuff and basically thirty minutes of this movie was cut out mm-hmm. um because it was it was originally fifty four minutes. Um, and apparently there were just all of these like side scenes and kind of like atmosphere and character building stuff that is gone now. Although it does, it does almost sound like from what the, what little I read about it, it sounds like some of the stuff that was cut out was more entertaining than the stuff that was kept in. Apparently there was a whole pumpkin chariot race. Yeah. Other got cut out. How this movie was recut is, is somewhat contentious. I think there is an account from Melies's widow, um, Jeanne Dalcy. I think is how you say your name. Who later said that Ferdinand Zecca re-edited and massacred the film. <laughs> she her her word is yeah. massacred. Yeah. Um and like deliberately tried to make it worse. Like Ferdinand Zecca was sort of like recutting all of Melies's movies at Pate to kind of ruin them. Ugh, it's and awful. <laughs> I don't I mean, who knows if that's true, but it's if so, that's that's pretty bad. I I could see it. Yeah, I, mean, I kind of can too. <laughs> from what I from what I I get from Ferdinand Zecca, he um he seems like a bit of a straight laced guy who wouldn't who wouldn't appreciate Melies's tomfoolery. Yeah, he he cannot sanction his his buffoonery. Yeah, <laughs> I mean there, there is there is some some really good stuff in this i think there's there's a lot of great like costumes and sets and mm-hmm. i think the chariot it, transformation is really good yeah um there are like imp children in this one which i don't remember being final imps in cinderella final imps uh yeah, and well and, 
some of the other some of the other movies had imps also. Oh, okay. Um, the next one also has imps. Well, um, uh, what do you call it? Conquest of the Pole also had his final moon face. Which, right. Was uh, it the moon in that one? I thought it was a different. Oh, sorry, body. it is um, uh, Jupiter. Or no, it's Saturn. Right. So it's it's a planet face. Yeah, final planet face. Yeah. Or a heavenly body face. I don't know. <laughs> face in a thing in the sky. His yeah. Yeah. So the the final moon face was last year, nineteen eleven. Yeah. But yeah, uh, it was it was all right. Cinderella. Yeah, it was, this it was fine. This is the one that I accidentally watched in when we did eighteen ninety nine. Oh really? And I was like, oh my god, this yeah. is so crazy, you know. <laughs> Um, there is a single sort of like medium close up shot in this one, mm-hmm. which I've, I saw somewhere online. It might've been Wikipedia that like that was for an added that in because it's like so, so abnormal for a Melies movie. Yeah. Uh, there was also some brief like parallel action that was happening, mm-hmm. uh, uh, with the, I believe with the clock and then like cutting back to the, yeah. the, the room and everything. And there's suspicion that that's also Zekka's influence. Yeah. One of the other, the other final movies that he made uh, that was also recut by Ferdinand Zekka, supposedly, is The Night of the Snows. Yes. Which is another fantasy movie, but like not really a fantasy epic. More of a, a small scale kind of, I don't know. I don't know how to describe this one in terms of like his oeuvre. It's a little quest thing. It's like a little yeah. nightly quest. It's, um, but like much smaller scale than uh, Kingdom of the Fairies or something like that. Yeah. Um, if I'm not, if I'm remembering correctly, this one uh, had a working title that was the same French title as The Witch. Um, and oh, huh. uh, this, and so it does seem like of a somewhat similar scale to The Witch. Yeah. Uh, and I think you reuse some of the props too. Mm-hmm. Um. I think some of the creatures appear in both. And yeah, this is this is Melies getting to play the devil for one last time. Yeah. This is uh, his last Melies as Satan. And he, he really he really chews choose the, the scenery yeah. as uh, as this <laughs> as this devil. He's like very chummy, uh like kind of jokingly chummy with uh the, the knight and kinda mm-hmm. uh uh he plays his Yeah, there there are more imps in this one, of course, because it's the devil. Yeah. But uh Um yeah, this, the the plot of it is kind of the the standard fairy tale princess getting kidnapped and then rescued by a heroic knight story. Mm-hmm. But this one has the addition of the kind of the main villain is uh, like a jealous human man. Yeah. Um. Normally, it's like a uh, a witch or a monster or some sort, or Satan himself. Whereas in this, Satan appears as sort of like the guy who helps the human villain, but then at the end, because the the villain sold his soul. He gets dragged to hell at the end, which is, <laughs> which is pretty fun. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, the way that he gets in contact with the devil is through an alchemist named Alka Frisbus, which suggests a Melies cinematic universe. Oh shit. <laughs> uh, cause we've seen Alka Frisbus yeah. before. Oh yeah. I know the MCU, the Melies cinematic universe. <laughs> um, but yeah, Alka Frisbus is neutral because he also helps the good guy mm-hmm. um, yeah. uh, when he when he approaches the alchemist for help. And one thing that I was wondering that might have been a Zeka thing for this one is that, and which I think is actually good, is that uh, a lot of the scenes end 
like really percussively in this movie. Hmm. Uh, like the action is still going in a way when the scene cuts to the next one, um, which made it, it made it feel like a lot had feel like it had more energy. Um, yeah. Uh, but it's definitely not something that I've seen Melius do anywhere else. Mm-hmm. I mean, yeah, I didn't, um, I didn't really notice any big differences in the editing style mm-hmm. watching watching these. I mean, the the cut to a close up in Cinderella was probably the one thing that was like, oh, this is different. But yeah, in terms of like, uh, in terms of them being like noticeably different in their editing style, I didn't really pick up on it. I'm sure if I went back and like rewatched them, I I might. But, um, yeah. And then the last one, the yep. last film that Melier has ever made. Yeah, this one, it's unclear if it ever was released, actually. Yeah. If it was, it was probably actually released in 1913, not 1912. But it yeah. seems almost more likely that it wasn't actually ever released yeah. at the time and was only discovered much later. Yeah, and it was, it was all shot in 1912 as well. Mm-hmm. And this is the voyage of the Borishan family, or the Blockhead family. Oh, is that what it means? Yeah. <laughs> that makes sense. Um, and then, yeah, this is another kind of... Uh, it turns... Like, halfway through, it turns into a haunted hotel movie. <laughs> well, but kind you- of, except that, like, the the interesting thing is that it's not supernatural. Like, like I don't I don't think, right? Like... The, the the framing of this is that there's a rich family who is fleeing to escape like their debts and taxes and mm-hmm. whatever, and uh, the creditors get in touch with their servants and then just tell the servants to just make their their lives hell until they come back. Um, and so there's a lot of just like pranks being played, as is typical in a Melies film. Uh, but even though some of them are using the same effects as in his supernatural movies, it seems um, like it's all in the story, at least supposed to be um, like pranks that their servants are playing. Maybe, maybe that that's probably right. I mean, I find this one a little bit harder to follow in terms of the plot. Yeah. I thought that they like ran into a haunted hotel and then, they had to rob a train on the way back to pay off their debts, and but then their house was haunted at the end, <laughs> which is probably not the correct reading of it. But that was my takeaway. Hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I think all the effects in this are things that we've seen before. Mm-hmm. But it it is cool to see again, just like the way that they're integrated into the sets. I think. Yeah, for sure. I, at the beginning of this one, I was a little, uh, I was getting like a little bored at the beginning of this one, and I wrote down, "Was this one Miguel?" Um, <laughs> Manuel, you mean? Oh, sorry, Manuel. Yeah, <laughs> the mysterious Manuel. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. Um, yeah, there's some cool like cross section uh, sets. There's the the when they're on the train, both leaving and coming back to their their home. There's the cool like sort of multiple train compartments on a single sort of cross section yeah. set. But yeah, this one is it's the last one, but it's it, there's not really a lot that feels very special about it. Yeah, let's just consider his last one to be uh Conquest of the Pole. And then Yeah, that one is is certainly the like the Melies Swan song. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, that's it. After a decade after Trip to the Moon, the end for Melies. Yeah. Um and the end to our podcast. <laughs> what was your favorite, Glenn? Um 
I mean, the detective's dog. <laughs> I didn't think it was the best movie of the year, but it was the one that I enjoyed the most. I feel like the best movie to me was Falling Leaves, but I feel like I have to go with the goofy picks every time. And so <laughs> it's got to be um, for his son. Yeah. It's got to be, right? <laughs> Honorable mention to the cameraman's revenge. I think I really oh, like that one a lot. Too. Yes, yeah, that one was really good. Um, okay, well, if you made it this far through the podcast, thanks for listening. We're gonna we're moving on to the era of feature films very soon, and so we're gonna be talking about like a much more restricted amount of things soon. I think. Yeah. If you uh, are interested in what we're doing, uh, which I assume you are at this point, uh, follow us on Instagram and uh, on Twitter. I, I try and post like behind the scenes stuff on Instagram a little bit. Uh, I, I, Twitter exhausts me, so I'm not really posting much on there except for when the new episodes are. If you're subscribed, you know that already. Uh, when the new episodes are, be subscribed. Uh, yeah. You're on YouTube. Hit the bell or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> send us send us uh, um, recommendations for any old movies. Absolutely. From the as 1910s. we're as we're getting into this era of you know actually well known feature films. Uh, some recommendations on what would be good to watch are definitely welcome. Well, with that, uh, Glenn, I will see you next year. See you next year. Oh,